0: section 59 of the cambridge modern history volume one the renaissance this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. chapter seventeen the christian renaissance by m r james part two we turn now from italy the center of light to ask what was the condition of affairs in the outer darkness beyond the alps in france the work of collecting greek books had hardly begun in the first half of the fifteenth century there were as we have seen what may be called accidental deposits in two or three places as at saint denis and the abbey of corbet in picardy the papal library at avignon which owned more than a hundred and twenty hebrew manuscripts in thirteen sixty nine could muster only some half dozen in greek another striking testimony to the statement made above that the former language was far more commonly known in that age than the latter in fourteen sixteen one greek book had found its way into the possession of the duke of Berry, but his cataloguers cannot give us any notion of the character of its contents the famous decree of the council of venice in thirteen eleven that the hebrew arabic and chaldean tongues should be taught at all the greater universities of europe had remained absolutely ineffective with the arrival of george hermonius at paris in fourteen seventy six the work of collection and diffusion of greek literature really began hermonius himself worked as a copyist alike of the sacred text and of secular authors still it was nothing more than a beginning that the fifteenth century witnessed the enormous accumulations which had ended in making the bibliothèque nationale of paris the depository of more greek manuscripts than any other library outside greece can show were the work of the two centuries that followed of england not much more remains to be said in the present connection and yet as the history of our progress in this field has been but sparsely investigated more may be said in this place than a consideration of proportion would perhaps seem to justify. We have rather frequent accounts of the importations of valuable collections of books from Italy. Adam Easton, Bishop of Norwich, who has already engaged our attention, was among the earliest those who collected in this way. He died in the last quarter of the fourteenth century. Thomas Walden gave many foreign manuscripts, notable for age and rarity, to the Carmelites of London john gunthorpe dean of wells deposited a precious collection formed in italy at at jesu college in cambridge it is still possible to trace the greater part of the gifts made by william gray bishop of eli to Balliol college another oxford college lincoln possesses a manuscript of the acts and catholic epistles in greek which was given to it in 1483 by robert fleming dean of lincoln Fleming was another of those who had travelled in Italy, and he is credited for having compiled a Greek dictionary. At Lincoln College is also a copy of the Gospels in Greek, which was the gift of Edmund Audley, Bishop of Salisbury, in 1502. Gone, alas, are the collections amounting in all to nearly 600 volumes, which Duke Humphrey of Gloucester gave at different times to the University of Oxford. Gone, to, for the most part, is that imported by William Tilly of Selling, prior of Christchurch, Church, Canterbury, the friend of Politan and the patron of Lanaker. During the two long visits that he paid to Italy, Selling had brought together a number of books. We have no list of them, but his contemporaries evidently accounted them very choice and precious. The tradition was even current, though we must gravely question its correctness, that among them was a copy of the de republica of cicero they were deposited in the prior's lodging on his return and unfortunately were never transferred to the main library of the monastery on the eve of the dissolution a royal commissioner leighton and his train were lodged in the building which contained the books an accidental fire the responsibility for which is laid by the monks upon leighton's drunken servants burst out and the treasured library of selling was consumed a few survivors are enumerated by leland notably a copy of basil's commentary on isaiah in greek a few which he does not name can be traced in our libraries now among them must in all probability be reckoned the first copy of homer whose presence can be definitely traced in england since the days of theodore of tarsus that copies of the newly recovered writings of the latin fathers and of the new translations from the Greek made their way to England among these various collections is not surprising. Both among Selling's books and among those which Bishop Gray gave to Balloy College, we find translations by Aretinus and by Travisari. In Gray's list, Lactantius and Tertullian are also represented. His copy of the Apology of the latter suggests a curious question it is enriched with marginal notes which in the opinion of the antiquaries of an older day were due to the pen of a twelfth-century critic no less a person indeed than william of malmesbury but the manuscript which contains them is of the fifteenth century and is the work of a foreign scribe and the notes themselves afford no clue to their author the library of st augustine's abbey at canterbury again possessed the apology of tertullian but we can only guess at the date of the manuscript and a wide range is open to us since the catalogue in which it is entered was drawn up in the last years of the fifteenth century it is to be feared that this country did not contribute in any important degree to the stock of new material which was being made available for the world's use poggio's visit to england was a failure in this as in other respects had he been able to explore the libraries of the great monasteries of the west or of the north, Glastonbury, Worcester, and the scenes of Beta's activity, he would not have returned empty-handed. Many books lay in hiding there, which he would have been glad to secure, and after years we find the English scholars actively playing their part in the matter of accumulating books. At present we must leave them, in order to inquire rather more briefly, into the records of the movement in germany and switzerland the council of basel 1431 had in one respect a remarkable and far-reaching influence on literature the dominican john of ragusa afterwards cardinal who figured there left in the dominican convent of the city a collection of books which in later years acquired a peculiar importance they included three manuscripts of parts of the new testament in greek and others were subsequently added to their number by purchase by the brethren of the house. These manuscripts were not only the first Greek books to which Johann Ruchlin had access, but were in after years well nigh the sole authorities used by Erasmus for the constitution of the first published text of the Greek Testament. Few cities outside Italy could at that time have supplied even such facilities as this to an intending editor of the sacred text and we may be grateful for the accident on which their presence at basel depended another of this cardinal's works which since his day has found a home at eton college is still the only known source of a tract of some celebrity current under the name of athanasius it seems not unfair to say that germany the country which in the middle of the fifteenth century gave to the cause of enlightenment its mightiest weapon, in the shape of the printing press, did little more than that cause, at least of her own initiative, in the course of that century. To the learning of the next her contributions were enormous, but for the moment she is conspicuous not by bringing light to her own hidden treasures, but by parting with them to strangers. The number of ancient texts, both classical and patristic, which were exported from german abbeys to italy was very large and scarcely less remarkable was the number and quality of those which remained undiscovered until native scholars of a later generation scented them out yet there were german book collectors before fourteen fifty and to one of them it may be well to devote a few words in the letters of poggio and his contemporaries there is not unfrequent mention of one nicholas of trier as a successful collector and discoverer, it is a probability, and indeed it has been accounted nearer a certainty, that he is identical with Nicholas of Cusa, afterwards cardinal, who became famous as a politician, as a mathematician and reformer of the calendar, and as a writer against Islam. Cusanus died in fourteen sixty four and bequeathed to a hospital he had founded at Cuez on the Mosul, his native town the books brought together by him during his residence in italy and his journeys to the greek lands at cuis a good many of them still remain the collection has to some extent suffered from an exchange of old lamps for new which was effected in the last century to the advantage of the Harleian library but the books which are now at the hospital of st nicholas at cuis are both individually and collectively worthy of notice two Greco-Latin Psalters of the 8th and ninth centuries, three other Greek manuscripts, one being an early and famous catena on St. John's Gospel, and two copies of most of the Old Testament in Hebrew are the striking features among the biblical works. In the patristic section is a volume transcribed for the cardinal which contains certain works then of very rare occurrence. Optitus of Milevis against the Donatists origin de principis tertullian's apology and the shepherd of hermas there are moreover two early cyprians and copies of the latin versions old or recent of works of athanasius of eusebius's preparatio evangelica of cyril of philo of aristaeus and of dionysius in addition to these the presence of the earlier polemics against the mohammedans of works of raymond lull in great profusion and of the new versions of plato and aristotle gives a special character to this forgotten storehouse in spite of the losses it has suffered the library of cues is to be reckoned among the most perfect and unadulterated examples that have survived of the collection of a single scholar of the middle of the fifteenth century so much as to the formation of libraries in various parts of europe and of its relation to the Christian Renaissance. We have designedly devoted a considerable space to this side of our subject, inasmuch as it has not as yet been adequately appreciated by the generality. To most men the study of inventories and catalogs seems dry work, but the evidence derivable from it is of a kind not easily to be upset. It must be remembered, besides, that the existence of these libraries did not affect their possessors only. Most of them were thrown open to students of all classes, so that they were centers not only for the preservation of literature, but for a wide and rapid diffusion of knowledge. We may have other occasion to recur shortly to the topic of book preservation. At present, two other subjects intimately connected with the development of learning in the 15th century appear to require comment. The first is the work of those who made translations of the newly imported Greek literature the fact that very many of those who welcomed the fresh materials for study were unable to use them in their original forms needs little explanation petrarch himself never mastered greek but whichever of several readily intelligible causes it was that gave rise to the demand for translations it is certain that they were actually made in great numbers there was as we have noted a considerable stock of them of older date already in circulation works of origin athanasius basil gregory nazianzen and chrysostom were all available many of these and particularly those by Burgondio of pisa were or were accounted obscure and barbarous many other works of the same authors had never been current in latin at all there was thus room for a fresh translation of a whole literature we have already encountered by the way the names of some of those who put their hands to the work probably the most important labourer in this field was ambrogio Travisari, general of the camidolite order who died in fourteen thirty eight to him the church owed an improved version of the homilies of chrysostom on the pauline epistles of other tracts by the same father of the greek Vita patrum of Dionysius the areopagite of aneses of gaza and not a few other books his joy in his labor of translating which was the great object of his life appears over and over again in the hundreds of letters we possess from his pen the interruptions in his work which his appointment to the generalship of his order occasioned, were a constant grievance bitter were his regrets when he yielded to the persuasions of cosmo de medici and undertaken to make a latin version of diogenes laertius not solely because the task distracted his attention from the holy doctors but because the lives of the pagan philosophers was not a subject upon which a christian monk should spend his time of all the prominent translators Travisari is perhaps the one who has most clearly before him the thought that it is a worthy task to reopen to the latins the minds of greek theology we see of course in him the same rather disappointing want of interest In the writers of the very earliest christian period that we have noticed in studying the library catalogues disappointing because the conviction can hardly be resisted that had the scholars of the fifteenth century made special and definite inquiries they would have been in time to recover writings which have since perished it is impracticable to discuss at any length the productions of the multitude of translators contemporary with or subsequent to traversari we may mention but one of the most notable among them next to the Stromatus of clement of alexandria no patristic treatise is more remarkable for the number and value of the ancient authorities whom it quotes than the preparatio evangelica of eusebius it therefore naturally attracted the attention of the lover of pagan antiquity as well as of the smaller band who desired to learn more of the origins of christianity and to the men of the middle ages it had been absolutely unknown the latin version of it by george of trebisson was one of the most important additions to learning which that age could have seen it opened a whole new realm of forgotten history from it men first learned the names of such writers as zanconeathang manetho and barossos indeed the publication of the book may very probably have paved the way for the once famous forgeries of Annius of Virturo, translations of some part of Philo's works and of the venerable Hellenistic forgery known as the Letter of Aristaeus, were also produced before the middle of the fifteenth century. Much then had been done towards reopening the ancient storehouses before the date at which it was long fashionable to say that the revival of Greek learning began the taking of constantinople in 1453 much too before the printing press had been set up great libraries had been formed and translators had been at work and to such good purpose that a very representative collection of greek theology was readily accessible to any studious western the next development that we look for is the rise of the critical instinct the fifteenth century produced one critic who died before its close lorenzo valha he though uninspired by any interest in the christian religion did a considerable service to the cause of truth by pointing out the falsity of certain documents which had long taken high rank among the archives of the church one of these was the donation of constantine a forgery easy to detect when attention was once drawn to it but yet a monument whose apparent importance was so great that the fate of usa might have seemed likely to await the man who first laid hands upon it the other was the group of works which passed under the name of dionysius the Areopagite. we have seen something of the popularity of these books as attested by the multiplicity of versions in which they were current and indeed so important are they in themselves as a meeting ground of christian theology and greek philosophy that they may be considered not unworthy of the pains lavished upon them by erigena saracensis Grosstest, and traversari the last word has not yet been said as to their origin in history but it is clear enough that the first word was spoken by lorenzo valla no one before him had questioned the claim of these writings to be regarded as works of the apostolic age Hardly anyone since his time has had a word to say in defense of that claim. The story of Grossin's relation to them, of the high value he set upon them at first, and of his later conviction that Vala's estimate of them was the true one, a conviction which, with characteristic honesty, he hastened to make public, forms as good an illustration as any that can be found of the spirit that was abroad. New estimates of the old documents were being formed, as a direct result of the accession of new materials for study one question of the highest importance to our subject has been left out of consideration in the preceding remarks what was the condition of things as regards the text of the scriptures the fountainhead of christian science since fourteen fifty five the church had had in its hands a printed bible in latin and more than one vernacular version had seen the light the old testament also had been printed in hebrew by italian jews but what was the quality of these texts had roger bacon's aspirations for a latin bible corrected according to the oldest copies and for the multiplication and distribution among the clergy of the scriptures in the original tongues been satisfied the question must be answered in the negative of the many printed vulgates none offered a text constructed on critical principles and it is probable that of the earliest Hebrew Bibles, such as that of Sancino, few copies made their way into Christian hands. The first important attempt to present the world with a complete Bible in the original was made in Spain, a country which in after years contributed less than most to the cause of Christian science. The Complutensian Polyglot gave us the first printed Septuagint, and the first printed though not the first published new testament in greek for the formation of the text of the septuagint and the latin vulgate great pains were taken to collect early manuscript authorities two septuagint manuscripts were borrowed from rome the vatican bible of the 4th century was not among them probably because its age and importance were not known to eximius and his colleagues For the Latin text, Spain itself possessed authorities as early as could readily be found elsewhere. The Greek text of the New Testament was formed from less good sources, and not one of the manuscripts used can now be identified with certainty. No praise is too high for the design of Exemines, and as regards the execution, it is doubtful whether the best scholarship of all Europe had it been mustered at Alcala for the work. Could have produced a much better result. The science of textual criticism was scarcely born. At this time, and for years afterwards, scholars such as Erasmus had no hesitation as to printing a text from a single manuscript and from sending that manuscript as copy to the press. Though printed in 1514, the Complenusian New Testament was not published for some years it seems indeed that copies of the whole work were not procurable earlier than fifteen twenty two the story of the preparation of the greek new testament which was actually the first in circulation is well known neither in its object the anticipation of the Complutensian text nor in the manner of its preparation does it seem to us deserving of praise hurried through the press of froben between september and march was formed on the authority of six manuscripts at most, the best of which Erasmus neglected almost entirely to consult. We have already traced the history of some of these manuscripts and have seen them in the hands of Johann Ruchland. Four of them are still at Basel, a fifth now in the Ottingen Wallerstein, Library at Mahingen, was the one authority available for the Apocalypse. The last six verses of the last chapter are missing, and erasmus was reduced to translating them into rather surprising greek from the latin vulgate the sixth authority was not a copy of the new testament but of theophylact's commentary on the gospels apparently still at basel it is this theophylact archbishop of bulgaria who is designated in erasmus's preface by the mysterious name Bulgarius. Faulty as was the Erasmian edition, it was a truly epic-making book. It was the ancestor of the Textus Receptus, and the channel by which the Greek text of the New Testament was most widely diffused. This was natural not only because Erasmus was first in the field, but because his text, in its many editions, was far cheaper and more convenient than the huge polyglot, of which but six hundred copies in all were printed to trace the history of the printed greek testament through the various editions of erasmus of aldus of simon de colines and of the estians is beyond the scope of this chapter we must be content with noticing that in robert estians third edition that of fifteen fifty known as a ditio regia a considerable advance in textual criticism is perceptible Estienne employed not less than 15 manuscripts for the correction of his text. Most of these have been identified. Eleven are at Paris, and two at Cambridge. Since the original text of the New Testament had been allowed to remain so long unprinted, it was hardly to be expected that the older Oriental versions should be very quick in making their appearance. Indeed, it was not until just after the middle of the century that one of the most important, the Syriac, first saw the light. In 1555, the Austrian Chancellor of Ferdinand I, Johann Albrecht Wiedemannstetter, enabled a native Syrian priest, Moses of Mardin, to publish an edition of the Peshitta version of the New Testament at Vienna. Wiedemannstetter had himself been interested in Syriac before this. A rather famous Syrian monk, Theseus Ambrosius, had been his teacher it is commonly said that the eccentric and possibly insane guillaume postel had a hand in the production of this first syriac new testament of which three hundred copies were sent to the Marianite patriarch and him of antioch it is our task to deal chiefly with beginnings but it is impossible to pass entirely unnoticed the roman edition of the septuagint version which appeared in fifteen eighty seven its text was based mainly on the great vatican manuscript and the committee of scholars who superintended its production included the cardinals surletto and Carafa, as well as latino latini and pierre morin this was not an editio princeps but to biblical scholars it was of enormous importance the version had been already twice printed first in the Complutensian polyglot Annexed by Aldus in 1518. But in the Roman edition, a manuscript of first class value was for the first time utilized. Until the 19th century, indeed, the text of the Vatican manuscript was only known by means of this book. The attempts of Sixtus V and Clement VIII to supply the Church with an authoritative text of the Latin Vulgate were, as we know, not brought to a satisfactory issue but the fact that the attempt was made deserves at least a passing notice with the translators and expounders of the bible it is simply impossible to deal with regard to the first it can only be said broadly that the sixteenth century saw innumerable new versions of the scriptures many were in latin e g that of sanctius pagnius and attempted either fidelity or elegance of style or both Others were in the vernacular of this or that country, and these were naturally in most cases the offspring of the reforming movement. The high standard of knowledge which was attainable can be readily indicated to Englishmen by reference to the authorized version of 1611, the scholars whose work we see in this were essentially men of the 16th century. As to the commentators, it is even more hopeless to attempt to enter into detail, Les fayes de Taples, Colette, Sadaletto, Erasmus, were all of them men who advanced the cause of sacred learning by trying to ascertain the actual meaning of the words of Scripture, instead of presenting their readers with a rechauff of the glossa ordinaria, or fashioning every sentence into a weapon of controversy. But besides these, there were innumerable writers who contributed to the elucidation of both testaments they were confined to no one sect or country but their names must not be sought here something must now be said of the growth of hebrew studies among christian scholars the thirteenth fourteenth and fifteenth centuries had produced a number of men who for the purpose either of biblical study or of controversy had acquired a knowledge of hebrew and from time to time the church had attempted to encourage and foster such students the close of the fifteenth century saw a new development in this as in other branches of sacred learning. The brilliant young noble and scholar, Pico della Meridola, may not unfairly be singled out as the beginner of the movement. His training in classical philosophy, coupled with his deep interest in theological study, made him eagerly seek and warmly welcome a system of learning which professed to be the fountainhead of both subjects. This system was the Jewish Kabbalah, ostensibly as old as the Patriarch abraham its principal documents are now known to be productions of the thirteenth century and intrinsically they are wholly unworthy of the reverence which has been paid to them by many great minds the influence they exercise may be compared with that of the pseudo dionysian writings though it was less widely felt and less enduring pico saw no reason to doubt the claim of the cabalistic books to be a reverend antiquity and he did his best to impart to the world the treasure he thought he had found his work is mainly important because of the effect it had upon joan rookland we have had occasion already to mention rookland as a student of greek but in popularizing the study of that language and literature he did little as compared with erasmus and many others in hebrew however he was the teacher of the modern world his personal instruction and by the compiling of grammars reading books and a rudimentary lexicon he became unconsciously the first who carried into effect the aspirations of roger bacon and it is unquestionable that he owed the interest he felt in the sacred tongue in a large measure to the work of pico della mirandola by this he was attracted to the study of the kabbalah and in praise of the kabbalah his most voluminous works were written nor can his famous defence of the rabbinic books be wholly disassociated from the consequences of pico's influence though in this respect the debt he owed to his jewish instructors must evidently be taken into account ruchlin it could be further noted was well nigh the first german hebraist though in england france and italy it has been easy to name scholars throughout the medieval period who had more or less knowledge of the language such has not been the case as regards germany yet this slowness to receive the new learning was more than compensated by the ardor and thoroughness with which it was utilized when once its value had been recognized if the beginnings of a revival in christian learning can be traced to bacon and gross Test in the thirteenth century there can be little doubt that the central figure of the whole movement is erasmus this is a commonplace and when it has been set down the difficulty of deciding how much detail should be added to the bare statement is very great his personality cannot be adequately set forth within the limits of a single chapter his career has been shortly traced elsewhere in this volume the most that can be done here is to summarize the work done by him in reopening the long closed pages of the church's early literature we have spoken already of what is usually accounted his greatest service in that department the publication of the greek text of the new testament but we have seen that his best work was not put into this it was a hurried production and the task of forming a really good greek text of a set of documents with so long and complex a history as the books which composed the new testament was a task beyond the powers of any individual many generations of textual critics were destined to collect materials and to elaborate theories before the principles on which the work must be done were formulated and even in our own day perfection has not been attained erasmus was far more at home and far more successful in dealing with patristic texts his hero among christian scholars was saint jerome before the close of the fifteenth century we find him giving expression to his desire that he might be enabled to improve the text of his father's works and in particular that of his epistles in these as is well known there is a multitude of greek and hebrew quotations Anyone who has looked at, say, a twelfth-century manuscript of the letters will remember what a scene of confusion is certain to take place when the scribe is confronted with one of these passages. The best that one can hope for is an unintelligent imitation of the Greek uncial characters, upon which conjecture more or less scientific may be founded. Too often the copyist's courage deserts him, and a blank is left. The earlier editions of Jerome were no better than the manuscripts erasmus is never tired of saying that before his time jerome could not be read johann amerbach the printer had set on foot the enterprise of a new issue of jerome's writings and had engaged the services of ruchland and others to amend the text ruchland's works which had to do more especially with the greek and hebrew quotations just mentioned was it seems done more by conjecture than by the authority of manuscripts More successful was Johann Kono, a Dominican of Nuremberg, who made use of such ancient copies as he could find. At Ammerbach's death the edition was incomplete. It was continued by his two sons in conjunction with Johann Froben, and at this point Erasmus's services were called in. In 1516 the work was published and dedicated by Erasmus to Warham, Archbishop of Canterbury, the prefaces to this and to the other editions of patristic texts which Erasmus superintended contain perhaps the most instructive expressions of his attitude as a Christian scholar, which can readily be found. Oranius, Origen, Athanasius, Basil, Chrysostom among the Greeks; Cyprian, Hilary, Augustine, and Arnobius on the Psalms among the Latins, all benefited by his critical care is the first perhaps who had a glimpse of the true greatness of origin one page of origin he says is preferable to ten of augustine and yet such all-important books as the commentary upon john and the tract on prayer were unknown to him nothing is more conspicuous in him than the acuteness of his critical sense in his preface to hilary he dwells at some length upon the corruptions and interpolations of his manuscript authorities his conjectural emendations are most noteworthy one the substitution of oxian faciens for ores in faciens in the pseudo Arnobius, is worthy of a Bentley. his sense of style is wonderfully keen over and over again he detects and rejects tracts wrongly fathered on one or other of his authors not that he is free from error in these matters he is not sure whether irenius wrote in greek or latin he identifies Arnobius, the author of a commentary on the psalms with Arnobius the apologist and he is inclined to repudiate chrysostom's homilies on the acts a genuine though poor work of that father's on revanche he rightly pronounces the opus imperfectum and matheum to be the reproduction of an arian yet this work by the irony of fate had during the Middle Ages been far more widely disseminated under Chrysostom's name among the Latins than anything that Chrysostom really wrote. In the preface to Hilary is a passage which sums up the position of Erasmus towards the ancient and the scholastic learning far better than we could do it for ourselves. We have no right to despise the discoveries or improvements which have originated in the minds of our contemporaries, yet it is an unscrupulous intellect that does not pay to antiquity its due reference and an ungrateful one that rejects those to whose industry the christian world owes so much what would sacred learning be without the labors of origen tertullian chrysostom jerome hilary and augustine i do not hold that even the works of thomas aquinas or scotus should be entirely set aside they wrote for their age and delivered to us much that they drew from the writings of the ancients, and expound it most acutely. On the other hand, I cannot approve the churlishness of those who set so much store by authors of this class that they think it necessary to protest against the providential revival of good literature all over the world. There are many kinds of genius. Each age has its different gifts. Let each man contribute what he can— and let none envy another who does his best to make some useful addition to the common stock of knowledge to the ancients reverence is due and in particular to those who are commended by holiness of life as well as by learning and eloquence yet they are to be read with discretion the moderns have a right to fair play read them without prejudice but not without discrimination in any case let us avoid heated contention the bane of peace and concord such was the spirit in which erasmus strove to work in some words of his good friend and fellow worker beatus renatus tells us something of the effect of his work on his own age he was sufficiently outspoken on the subject of sacred learning for to use his own words in a letter to a friend he saw that more than enough was made of scholastic theology and that the ancient learning was quite set at naught. theologians were so much occupied with the subtleties of scotus That the fountainhead of divine wisdom was never reached by them. We begin, God be thanked, to see the fruit of these warnings. Instead of Hales and Halcott, the pages of Cyprian, Augustine, Ambrose, and Jerome are studied by our divines in their due season. End of section fifty nine